I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in offering a very warm welcome to Jane Smiley and Alex Clark. Jane, thank you so much for, for battling oh. across horrible London weather and traffic and um, you've been out to Bath yesterday and just come <laughs> yes. back. You're, you're kind of doing a whistle-stop tour. A little bit, yeah. Aren't you? And you're going to be talking to us about your 14th novel, mm-hmm. Some Luck, um, in a career that's now... Novel writing-wise is sort of about kind of 35 years you've been writing novels. The first novel was published in 81, so almost, you know. And you've not really allowed yourself to be tied to a particular place, a particular period, a particular genre. And I'd love to talk to you about all those books. I'm sure there are many fans of all all your books, but people who want to ask questions about A Thousand Acres. Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, I'm happy to talk about any of them. Let's... Begin, I think, with a reading and your rather novel way of deciding <laughs> what to read. You kind of need a book, don't you? There you are. Well, here's a book. So um, what I like to do is, I did this last night, actually the first time, so let me be honest, but I really liked it. So you have to say, somebody has to shout out a number, a double digit or a triple digit number. And I'll turn to that page. 123. What was the other one? 53. 53. Okay, I'll look at each one. So 123. Well, that's a lot about farming. (laughs) I don't know. This is a pretty urban. This this is a pretty urban uh, environment. Um, But uh, 53. Yeah, let's do. I'm going to do. I'm going to. I'm going to end on 53 because that's the end of a chapter, and I will. um, I'll start on. They're playing a game. Uh, Frank is is about seven, I think. And they're playing a game. Family has come to visit. And they're playing this game where someone brings down the pot on, uh, rolls the dice, brings the pot down. And if you've managed to pull your cork, um, you get the money. And if you haven't managed to pull your cork, you have to pay. And... Um, so I'm not going to go through the whole game, but I'll talk a little bit about Frank. Frank did not like giving up beans, but at first he could not see how to avoid it. Each person rolled the dice, and everyone sitting around the table read the dice without saying a word, and while Frank was in the middle of understanding the numbers, the lid came down or didn't. The bad thing was, when he pulled his cork just to be safe, he had to give up three beans that way. 
Frank felt himself getting mad, but Martin was laughing, Tom was laughing, and even Henrietta was laughing, though she had given away lots of beans. Frank knew that if he cried or yelled or had a tantrum, he would be carried up to bed, so he pressed his lips together and stared at the dice. The lid came down, the lid went up. He had to pay a bean to Granny Mary. It was then that Martin whispered in his ear, It's always seven, Frankie. Just watch for seven. Seven, as Frank well knew, was six and one or five and two or three and four. The next time he saw a seven, he pulled his string and his cork fell into his lap. He looked up. Papa gave him a bean. He had three beans. Now he had four beans. He had had three beans. Now he had four beans. He laughed. A moment later, the dice and the lid came to him. Papa said, can you drop the lid, Frankie? I can do it for you. Frank put out his hand for the lid. Then he knelt up on his chair and leaned over the table. All the corks were in the middle, in a circle, with their strings sticking out of them. Frank gripped the dice in his hand and dropped them on the table. They were wide apart from one another, six and two, not seven. He picked up the dice. This time he opened his hand a little, the way Martin had done, and let the dice roll back and forth on his palm. Then he dropped them again. One bounced. Four and three, he brought the lid down on the corks. There was a loud clang. Not so hard, Frankie, said Papa. Frank lifted the lid. There were five corks under the lid. Five people gave him beans. He gave three beans away. He did this without being told to do, told what to do. Yaha, ya, said Opa. He's a natural, this boy. Someday we will tell him about Uncle Hans. There is no Uncle Hans, said Granny Mary. It took me years to figure that out. Who is Uncle Hans, said Papa, who was standing behind Frank. Ah, Uncle Hans was the lucky one, said Opa. There is no Uncle Hans, said Granny Mary. True enough, said Opa, and they all laughed. There was a Hans, though. Opa had told Frank the story. One day, Hans left the village and walked toward the dark mountains. As he was walking along, a hedgehog came out of the forest and said to Hans, would you like to come with me into the forest? I will give you an enormous fir tree to live in all your own. But Hans said no. He walked along. A little while later, a fox came out of the ground and said to Hans, Good morning. Would you like to come with me? I will show you a wonderful cavern all hung with icicles, clear and shining and beautiful. But Hans looked at the foxhole and said, No, thank you. He kept walking, and a bluebird flew down from a tall tree and said, I will give you a magic feather, and if you hold it in your hand, you can fly way up in the sky and look down on a beautiful lake with many boats. This tempted Hans, but the more he thought about it, the more it seemed too good to be true. So he turned away and went on. And then a wolf came up to him, and he had big teeth and long, rough hair, and Hans was very afraid, and the wolf growled, I have nothing for you. Do you have something for me? Hans said in a very small voice, I have a penny. That is all I have to make my way in the city. The wolf's eyes glared at Hans with a yellow glow, and he growled, May I have your penny? I do not even have a penny. So Hans gave him the penny, not so much out of fear, after all, as out of pity. Of all the animals, he thought, the wolf was the only one who had nothing. 
Once the wolf had taken Hans's penny, he said, Would you care for a ride? Hans nodded, and the wolf knelt down, and Hans climbed upon his back. And then the wolf stood up and galloped away down the road. Hans nestled into his fur and held on tight around his neck, and before he knew it, the wolf had turned into a great <coughs> prince who lived in a palace. As they galloped up to the palace gate, the wolf said, Of all my subjects, you are the only one who was willing to give me a penny. And so I give you the name Lord Hans, Lucky Hans, and you will live with me in my castle for the rest of your life. And at the end, the gate opened. Frank knew that whatever <laughs> Granny Mary might say, for him and Opa, Lucky Hans did exist. At the end of the game, Mama picked him up. He had 11 beans, which is four more than Henrietta, and one more than Tom. Mom carried him up to, Mama carried him up to bed. He was awake enough to push his beans under his pillow. That was, that was quite good luck, wasn't it? That, yes, that, it was. That, that brought quite a lot of, of, of the themes of, of the book sort of yeah. into play. And it also introduces us to one of the major characters, Frank, Frank who we yeah. meet when he's a baby. Yeah, he's about five months old. When we yeah, well, five months old, yeah. When we we just him. see him sort of <laughs> apprehending the world mm -hmm. from, from his kind of place on the porch. Just tell us a little bit about um, this very particular structure of the book and how it's kind of organised, and indeed the trilogy. Because yes, this is the, the trilogy, the whole trilogy is called The Last Hundred Years, and, the, and it moves year by year from 1920 to 2019. And it begins the year that Frank is born. Um, his parents, Rosanna and Walter, are 20, or about 19, actually, when he's born, and um, 25. And they have a farm in Iowa that Walter has purchased with a big debt. And um, so Frank is born, and he's the consciousness of the first chapter. And then the other children are born. Joe is born in 22... Um, Lillian is born in 26, um, Henry is born in 32, and Claire is born in 39. Um, both Walter and Rosanna have plenty of family in the neighborhood. Rosanna's family is of German extraction, um, and Rosanna was raised Catholic, and um, Walter's family is of English extraction, and he, his family is raised Protestant. And so they do their own little adventurous thing, which is to cross that religious line when they get married. And um, it follows the family on the farm. Um, Rosanna has a younger sister named Eloise who moves to Chicago eventually. So people start getting out pretty early. Um, and, but so it spreads out from the farm. And each chapter of the book is, is a year. Is a year. Yeah. And I thought that put me in mind, really, of your last novel, Private Life, in mm -hmm. which you had um, discrete chapters and then suddenly the action would move forward by quite a jump. So it, yes. was, it was sort of the same idea, but kind of differently sort of time-administered, as it were. Um, yes. But it, it, there's obviously a purpose to that kind of structure. Well, to the year-by-year -year structure. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to... Private Life was about a relationship, a single relationship that is very peculiar between um, an essentially a, a nice, normal, Midwestern girl who's maybe a little reserved and a little plain, um, but she's married to an absolute crackpot. 
and kind he, of genius crackpot. Well, yeah, he, he's a genius crackpot, and he becomes a world-renowned genius crackpot, and for being a crackpot, not for being a genius. Um, but I really wanted to talk about their relationship, and I wanted to talk about his way of, um, or not that, but her way of trying to find her own self in this relationship with this very overwhelming man. That's not what I wanted to do in this book. In this book, I wanted to follow the lives of these characters and the plots that come and go in their lives um, through the course of a century. And so um, there is a long period of time in private life, but it's not, it's internal, most of it. Um, one of the things that I had a, a sense of um, was um, the way in which you start the book, it's 1920, clearly momentous things have happened. Walter has been to the First World War. Mm -hmm. And then from the part that you read there, um, you're so aware of the backstories of the older generations mm -hmm. of the families. So you kind of know that all these huge stories have happened that you're never really good, that they'll just be hinted at, really. Mm -hmm. um, and you get this great sense of kind of time flowing. Yes, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have the sense of, um, I don't know if any of you have read 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, but there's a, a chapter in 13 Ways called the, 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 the Clock of the Novel. And what I did was I, I decided what 12 things, what 12 parts could be in any novel. So it's not just romance and epic, which is what we grew up you know, thinking about, but it's also history, polemic, uh, tale, gossip, <laughs> and so when I wrote this and then started analyzing afterwards what was in there, I realized it's history and gossip. That's what it is. <laughs> so the, the characters, it's an intimate view of their life, but it's woven into the things that they do, how, the ways in which they engage in history. And so they live in Iowa, but they move out into the world and... Um, they engage with the events, not all of them, but a lot of the events that um, happen between excuse me, 1920 and 2019. There's a wonderful line, I think, that, that quite near, sort of two-thirds of the way through, Rosanna, who hasn't really, she's occasionally tried to go and see things, but hasn't really left Iowa a great deal. No. Says, you, first of all, you think of people as runaways, and then you realize that they're the scouts, as mm -hmm. if they've got to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that also kind of seems um, clear is that you obviously have to hit these major events, the war, Many of the them, depression. Yeah. Well, Frank but, is the right age to go away mm -hmm. to the um, Second World War. He, and so is Joe, but Joe gets a, a, a farm deferment, which, which people did in the Second World War. So Frank is the one. Frank is the adventurous one. He's the one who, um, when, Rose, when Walter is doubtful about whether that he can get him to school, to the high school. Frank goes out and finds himself a way to get there. Um, when Walter doesn't think they have the money for Frank to go to college, Frank goes out and shoots squirrels and foxes and earns himself money selling fur. Um, and then when he goes to college, he lives in an unorthodox way in order to maintain his independence, but also to keep his costs low. But Frank, so Frank is the, always the one who's heading out, who um, wants to see what's out there. 
I just wondered if you were exploring not just um, this family, <coughs> but through through him and through various others, Eloise is another you've mentioned, just exploring the idea of a family. So you have these people who kind of cut themselves off mm-hmm. in various ways, but are not really cut off. And you're sort of, I think, kind of probing what the edges of what a family might be. How far do you have to go, get away and still be in it? <laughs> well, I think that's what Frank... I don't think he would say, how far do you have to get away to, to, from a family to still be in it? I'd th- say, how far would you have to get away to be out of it? <laughs> but they don't really let him go. You know, they, um, and ultimately, he doesn't lose complete track of the family. But others stay, others stay close, closer. Um, and maybe with some regret. You know, I'm not going to talk about volume two or three, but... Um, they, you know, they have things to think about and, and contemplate as they get older. When you're writing, um, I mean, any writer who's writing a novel evidently is in control of what happens to the characters in that novel. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think any. I don't think any novelist is actually. I think that the novelist who is in control of the characters is the novel with is the novelist with the dead novel. Because the characters, the, you, you set out to have a situation, you set out to have a plot, you set out to do a certain thing, but if the characters don't sort of seize, um, seize the narrative and shift it, um, then they don't have any, any of their own energy. So that's been always my experience. I've set out to do one thing or the other thing, and the characters have when they start coming alive, they say, no, no. I, I don't know if anybody's read Horse Heaven, but it, um, it, in Horse Heaven, the um, Marxist horticulture professor was the chairman of the horticulture department at a strangely familiar land-grant university. Um, <laughs> he, he's, look, he's, he's going around the espaliered uh, uh, fruit trees that he's planted around this old abandoned building and someone goes into the building and I didn't know someone was going to go into the building even though it's in like page three or four and I thought who is going into that building what is that guy doing and then that's when ho- the hog Earl Butts came to me the hog who lives at the center of the university and in fact I have to say that when I was at Politics and Prose giving a reading about some luck. Who should come up to me and say he was Earl Butts' son, but Earl Butts' son? <laughs> and I sort of shrank backward into my chair, and he said, no, my father was really, really flattered that you named the hog after him. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? And he said, no, I'm not kidding you. And I said, why was he flattered? And he said, because he was such a sweet, kind hog. <laughs> So I guess that's the compliment of the year from Earl Butts. <laughs> Jane, now that you've, you've brought up a novel, I mentioned Private Life, talked about um, Horse Heaven, and obviously Iowa is a connection to A Thousand <coughs> Acres. Let's just talk about um, some of your other books. And let me just ask you okay. why this spread, why this refusable, refusal to be pinned down into anything, really? Well, I'm just curious. You know, I, ideas come to me, and... For the first half of my career, I already had, I had about five ideas, and I 
I set out in the first half of my career to follow those ideas. One of them was the Greenlanders. Um, the first three books that I wrote, I look back and I think, well, those were like practice novels, just to, see, just to try out. So I tried out a mystery. I tried out a domestic novel. Um, I tried out a family novel. And fortunately, because I started when I did, which is in the early 80s, you could, do, you could write a practice novel. You could get a couple thousand dollars as your advance, and you could get a few nice little reviews and little pats on the head, and your career wasn't over. You know? So that was a great thing, to, to be able to do the first three. And then I set out to do the ones that I had thought of already, you know, the, the rewriting of King Lear, fixing, fixing those girls, and you know, giving them their voice, and... Then um, the Greenlanders, which is about the end of the medieval um, colony of Norse people in, in Greenland. Um, and that one has quite a cult following. <laughs> and, and then when I, after I'd finished A Thousand Acres, I said, well, what am I going to do for my comedy? And, you know, who was I reading? Well, I was reading David Lodge, and I was reading Small World, and I thought, oh... Hmm, but there's no pigs in Small World. <laughs> there's no, you know, engineers in Small World. We need to have a, a, an academic novel that is about a place like... I didn't mean it to be Iowa State. I meant it to be a, um, a characteristic land-grant university with practical concerns. And, and then I had to do a romance. So um, when I was in... Washington DC I have my I had my daughter with me and I was promoting some book um, <laughs> but at that time the Oklahoma bombing took place so I called her dad to tell him that we were fine and we, no nobody knew at that time what the Oklahoma bombing meant and whether the next bombing was going to be in Washington or whatever and I said you know I really need to I really need to write something about conflict within the U.S., and the first word out of his mouth was Kansas. I said, oh, because I was from St. Louis, so I knew about a little bit about that. So that was the romance, the, the, tra the journey of Liddy Newton from Illinois through Missouri, Kansas, back to Missouri. Um, and so that was intended to be the romance. So, you know... Things just came up, and I said, oh, that sounds interesting, and off we went. But nonetheless, when you're talking about it, you're saying, I had to write a romance. I had to write a... You felt some sense of compulsion to no, it's try more like a com It's more like a curiosity. You know, that what I always say is, you know, you f every novel that you finish is imperfect. That's because every novel is imperfect. That's just true. Even The Good Soldier is imperfect. I am sorry. <laughs> comes the closest, in my view, to being perfect, but the guy who's the American, he doesn't really sound American. So that's the way that it's imperfect. <laughs> so because of that, you know, for me anyway, you finish your novel based on King Lear, and you think, gosh, there was nothing funny in that, was there? <laughs> and so then you go and try something else, and so, so the next thing I tried was the comic novel, which I truly enjoyed, but then I thought, but then I thought, eh, it's not very deep. <laughs> and so, <laughs> a little ephemeral, you know. 
And so, um, so that's so I would just move on because of that. But the other thing is, I've always lived out in the boonies. So if you live out in the boonies, you can do whatever you want. That there's no pressure on you to be a part of a of, of a literary world or to to write what what is fashionable or whatever because nobody's even aware that you're out there you're just out there and you're doing whatever you want and you're quite happy with that you would you hate to be more tied to I have no I idea you, I have no idea you know sometimes I I think to myself am I missing something and I have this this friend who's I think she's now about she don't she wouldn't tell me truly her age but I think she's in her mid 80s now and she's been in the center of every universe she's ever been in she has lots and lots of friends, and I sometimes say to her, you know, do you think I should have more friends? And she said, no. <laughs> I, think she's ups- I think she's bothered by the constant upkeep, you know. <laughs> so when we, come to, when we come to this book, what is this your, now I'm going to try the, what is it, the, the, I really the multi-part did, yeah, book? The, I, no, not the multi-part book, but the passage of time. And also, I thought the last hundred years were quite interesting and eventful, <laughs> so why not pass my characters through the last hundred years. It also puts you in a position of not knowing, I mean, you can't know the end because the end won't have happened. There's another five years till the... That's right, so I have to guess. So we'll see. Okay. We'll see what I come up with. <laughs> Can I ask you a bit more, because obviously we've talked about, you know, 14th century Greenland to kind of a racetrack to, um, you know, the naval shipyards. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of style and in terms of this... Um, exploration of realism that you've sort of done throughout your career. Just talk a bit about that, about realism and, you know, somebody, Philip Henscher, writing here, said you were the vindication of realism. <laughs> <laughs> By which I think, I think... Do you think he's Red Horse Heaven? I doubt it. He thinks I'm the vindication of realism. I think what he meant by that, I mean, I wouldn't put, presume to put words in his mouth, but I think he meant... You pushed it. You took realism and you pushed the edges of what it, what it could do and what it wanted to do in mm-hmm. terms of different kinds of storytelling. Well, I'm really interested in the social and political aspect of the novel. You know, I, grew, I went to school. We grew up reading Dickens. We grew up reading Scarlet Letter. We grew up reading Giants in the Earth. Please raise your hand if you've ever read... Oh, there is one. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so these... All these novels had a social aspect. All these novels, I learned something. You know, when, it, when, when I raised my hand in seventh grade and I asked the teacher why they won't give Oliver Twist a second helping, you know, then clearly I have something to learn about the nature of the world. And she, she explained it to me, why they wouldn't. So clearly I'm... I became interested in injustice. I became interested in um, the relationship of art, both as a revealer of the way the world works and possibly an agent for change, though I don't know if that's true. Um, Seemed to be true for Dickens, you know. But um, so that's what realism is for. Realism says we live in a shared world. And... um, that, and you can understand my experience. Um, and it, since you can understand my experience, we can agree on the meaning of, th- of something. That's what realism says. 
Um, other types of more in interior ways of narrating say your world and my world are separate. And so it doesn't have it doesn't have an inherent. It may have a the author may have a belief in social change, but it doesn't have an he doesn't they don't have an inherent belief in the sharing of experience. I mean, one of my favorite um, authors of a certain generation is Nancy Midford, and she had lots of friends who were writing in very subjective ways. And she was writing in this apparently what seemed, must maybe seemed at the time, like this very retrograde but hilariously funny style, you know. But she was really good at um, get it, letting the characters in their own voice um, in the dialogue express their opinions. And their opinions were always funny and weird, you know. And so when I went back and I read a bunch of Nancy, read all of Nancy Mitford's novels a few years ago, and thought about her reputation in comparison to her peers, it seemed to me that she held, she held up a little better because of her belief in this, uh, this realistic shared world in which people could be extremely weird, but we could join in acknowledging that they were extremely weird, you know? So anyway, I think realism is a, is a fun thing. And it's why you've you've called a novel, I think, inherently political. Yes, absolutely. And inherently liberal. I was, I think you've, you said that in Thirteen Ways of Looking yes. at the Novel. Um, so you you think it's a sort of a sharing, or sort of democratic yes. kind of form. Yes, I think there's it is what happens in the novel is that, and it doesn't happen in a short story, doesn't have to happen in a play, doesn't have to happen in a poem, but in a novel because it's so long both the protagonist and the world that he or she lives in must be developed or the reader will toss it. And you cannot read about the same consciousness constantly with nothing else developed for more than about 70 pages. So if you're going to write a 500-page book, you have to develop the world that this person lives in which means that he or she has to have a relationship to that world, which means that that relationship is, there's going to be power involved in that relationship, As, especially if the um, protagonist is not absolutely, no, there has to be power, at least economic power, sometimes social power, sometimes romantic power, sometimes religious power, whatever. But as soon as there's power, in the relationship, then the novel becomes political because we're enlisted on the side of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. And if it's a comic novel, then the protagonist comes to, can learn to accommodate his world and they can learn to accommodate. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Him and that's inherently inclusive and that's inherently 
liberal, I would say. If it's a sad or tragic novel, then something's going to happen to him, and we're going to feel bad about it in some way. Either he deserves it because he's a jerk, or he doesn't deserve it because he's innocent or whatever. But power has been exerted, and we have to react. So that's one, one way in which the novel um, is inherently political. But the other way is, and I, I, I'm going to ask another how many have read, how many have read The Heptameron by Marguerite of Navarre? <gasps> there is one. <laughs> to me, two. Two. But to me, this is the seed. What an audience. This is the seed of the novel. It isn't, um, it isn't Don Quixote. It, when Marguerite of Navarre in the 1540s decided to update Boccaccio, she was living through a time, you know, can't you imagine? You know, we all want to update something, and she decided she's going to update Boccaccio, you know? And, but she's living in a time where the Reformation has passed through, the Counter-Reformation is passing through. And so when she gathers her ten friends, including the very dumb bulb of a king, um, to tell the stories, compared to the Boccaccio story, well, first of all, she makes a rule, and that rule is, or that rule is all the stories have to be true, so they are all gossip, right? And the second rule is that all the stories have to be about the question, can a woman retain her virtue and also know true love? And um, that's a political question. Even everybody would say that's a political mm -hmm. question, whether Marguerite knew it as a political question, but I think she did. So, so they tell their 72 stories, and the answer is no that a woman cannot retain her virtue. But, in but as they discuss the 72 stories, they reveal how much more rich their inner lives are than the characters in, in the Decameron were. So we've, ste we've, we've stepped forward into a world where people are invited and take pleasure in thinking for themselves, and so therefore they are more free than they were 200 years ago. Um, so 120 years goes by, and Madame de Lafayette takes this idea, can a woman know um, true love and retain her virtue? And she figures out a way to say yes. And the way she figures out to say yes is to give the Princess of Cleve an inner life. And therefore, the Princess of Cleve can adhere to her obligations, but she also has this, this freedom to have her own emotions. And boom, the novel is born. Don't tell me it's about a guy, you know, that's going off on his <laughs> poor, you know, coat rack of a horse. <laughs> that, that was a type of novel that was born. But the other type of novel, the novel of the inner life, the novel of who am I and what is my life, that was born with Madame de Lafayette in The Princess of Clef. So, so now we have these two, these, two part, these two ways in which the novel explores the inner life um, without anybody having to babble on about it on stage. And, um, and suddenly we have readers who can say, oh, I have an inner life too. I have an inner life too. And so we come to Pamela where even the servant girl has an inner life. You know, and where she would really, 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 really like to resist being raped by her boss. 
And, you know, I'm taking that seriously and I'm reading it and I'm a girl and I think, oh, I'm on her side. So to me, this is another way in which the novel is and always was political. This is the progression mm-hmm. through these various forms. And of course, you went back yourself to the Decameron. In, yes, I did. In 10 Days in the Hills. Yes, I and did. kind of obviously, in some kind of way, you were building all that into this idea of these... I thought, i got to get so much sex in here that, <laughs> that that it will be terrifying for some people to read and wonderful for others. But I, Boccaccio made me do it. I, that's my only excuse. Can I just um, ask you about the, the politics that there is in, in some luck before we open up to the audience for questions? Um, I mean, there's a lot, you know, whether it's sort of overt, whether it's just, you know, people reacting to you know, land and corn prices, mm-hmm. or whether it's your character, Eloise, who kind of just goes completely mm-hmm. in a different way. Do you just want to talk a bit about that? Because it's, it was, it's very marked part of the book. Mm, nobody else noticed that but you. <laughs> really? She's such a great character. Who, was, Eloise? Yeah, she's such a great character. But she's maybe like she's, your character Dora in the in private life. Yeah, Eloise is overtly political. She does. She doesn't exactly know why. You know, she goes away t- from the farm first to Iowa State and then to Chicago, and she's the kind of child. She has been the kind of child who's always asking questions. You know. And the same question over again, but why? But why? I know you said that, but why? You know, so they're always telling her to go sit down and be quiet. And she's very skeptical about her sister Rosanna's uh, adoration of the various children. So she goes off to Chicago, and it's, it's a wonderful world. And who does she meet there but a nice Jewish Marxist uh, Englishman? <laughs> who comes from a long line of rabbis. And they spend, you know, she's, he's perfect for her because they can spend their whole day arguing. <laughs> and suddenly this is introduced into the novel. Up to this point, people have argued over the table about what to do with, you know, the, the extra acreage yeah. they've got or when to, what kind of tractor to, or whatever. And suddenly... It's the world of political meetings and the outside world suddenly. But that was the 1930s. So, you know, even in Iowa, especially maybe, especially in Iowa, because Hoover was from Iowa, Wallace was from Iowa, um, that people were aware that the government was taking responsibility for how um, the markets had screwed up. And so maybe because some of the people in the government were local boys, you know, they were... The Iowans were ready to um, do, pay pay attention, but also this is the time of the radio, you know. So, but you know, I get. I, I guess I have to say that in in all the books that I've written and done research for that have taken place in the U.S., it's always political. It's always political. It's always political. You know, there is not, even though the ruling class. Um, or the oligarchy, or the 1%, or whatever you want to call them, even though they're generally in power, um, the, the culture elicits political um, beliefs and political attitudes and opinions from the people who um, then express them. So it's like, I don't know, I really don't know what it's like here, but there it's like exhaustingly political all the time. But you have to say it always has been. As a whole, I mean, when we're thinking about perhaps, would you say, um, your novel of real estate, 
we could call oh, your, mo- good your, faith. your yeah. most political book in a way. I mean, it No, I think The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton okay. is the most okay. political. But you have to, but I've always felt you have to engage or you're not talking about the world that we live in. Can we take some questions from, from the audience? Okay. Um, okay. You mentioned that um, when you started writing that there was less risk, so you felt you were able to explore and, and take risk. Um, how do you think it would be for an author now starting out? Could they do the same thing? Um, I think publishing, excuse me, I think the way people get their books out now is in such flux that I could say both yes and no. Because um, when my daughter um, published, uh, she went to work in the um, publishing business, and she was so unimpressed by the authors that she had to send around to various places that she said, well, I can do this. And so she wrote a trilogy of young adult books about uh, 16-year-old Americans who go to Paris and start getting into deep trouble immediately. And bam, she sold them. She sold the whole trilogy for a decent amount of money. So yes, she had that, she had that practice novel. I said to her, why did you do that? She said, I needed the money. I thought, wow, <laughs> nobody says that anymore. You know? But she, so, so she did it. So she got to have that. But that, even that was 10 or 12 years ago. So now with e-books and um, the changes in publishing, there, I think there are more ways in. But the real question is, are there more ways up? And I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Um, you know, how did the woman who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey get that bestseller? Well, she published it herself. And then somebody found it. Somebody at Random House found it. And it was a huge, big deal. So I think publishing has always been in chaos. It's always been idiosyncratic. There's always some new way that, it's, that, they're, that people are trying to get in, and you just have to hope for the best. There was a question just just behind. Yeah, my question is about the trilogy. For somebody who doesn't know who's going to appear out of the orchard and wander through the house and what's coming, you must have had to forward plan across a, a greater extent than you're used to doing. And I no, wonder I how that. What might... I did was I knew what was I knew some of the big events that were coming, um, but. What my plan was, was to have these characters begin as very distinct personalities and then just send them out into the world. And so I knew Frank was going to get to the Second World War, but until, he, until 19, the beginning, let's say the fall of 1941, I didn't know how he was going to get there. So I knew Pearl Harbor was coming, but I didn't know its effect on Frank. So... My, my job, I felt, was to just send them out and to have them interact with the world as they could see it. So my job was to kind of look at the world through their point of view and then have them decide this or decide that. And sometimes it would work out and sometimes it wouldn't work out. But so then, so then, so just to give an example, so Frank, um, for, whatever, for the reasons that I'm not going to say, he goes, he goes and enlists. And he gets sent to Fort Leonard Wood, which is down in Missouri, which is not like Iowa at all, as far as Frank is concerned. And 
when he's there, he, he runs into a, uh, a guy who's one of his training commanders who thinks that they should send snipers to Europe, which is not, people are, snipers are being sent to the Pacific, but not necessarily to Europe. And so there's an interview that Frank has where um, he goes into the com commander's office. <coughs> the commander is a West Point graduate, the lieutenant, I guess. And um, the, the guy says, he talks to him a minute, and then he says, turn around. Frank turns around and he says, okay, what was on my desk? And Frank runs down the list of everything that was on the guy's desk, which shows that he's very observant. So they, so they decide that this is, he's a good, good possibility for being a sniper. So when he gets to, um, into the war, he gets in as a sniper rather than as an infantryman or um, a regular you know, tank guy or whatever. So, so that kind of thing, well, I didn't know anything about that. And you had him shooting squirrels. Yes, I had him shooting squirrels. Yes, I knew that he was observant. And I knew that he had, he had this ability to shoot, and I knew that he liked to see things from a distance. So once I had these qualities in mind, then I could shape the narrative around um, what I know his inherent gifts are. Would you ever, or did you ever, in any kind of sense, do the sort of reverse? Would you ever get somewhere and, for example, think, I want someone to be a sniper, I need to go back and make him shoot squirrels when he was 10? No. No. Okay, so it's always <laughs> forward progression. Is no, there. this is the first novel that I ever wrote where I didn't didn't have to go back and fix stuff. Um, Why do you think that is? What was the difference? I don't know. I don't know. I just kept going, and and you know, have you ever taken that Myers Briggs personality sorter? You know, the one that I come up as is the improviser. And so maybe I finally found my real self, you know, just improvising all the way through. In these discrete yeah. kind of chunks. Um, I think we have another question. I'm wondering whether um, having looked, having written, having been involved in a narrative over the last hundred years that you chose, did you change your view about the last hundred years? And what were the most, what conclusions did you draw? We are in deep shit. <laughs> <laughs> the conclusions I drew are mostly about when the shit started to hit the fan. And so I'm not going to say when I thought that was. You have to read that to find out. But um, I read a lot of stuff about lots of different organizations. I read the New York Times fairly faithfully in the in its um, archive, you know, I, and I don't know, I didn't change my views. Um, I got sad, though. But that's okay, because um, Lady Murasaki, who wrote the tale of Genji, says that this is the sad things that last the longest. I just wondered if you'd describe for us a typical day when you're writing, what your routine is. My routine, well... Um, I have four horses, three dogs, um, and so my routine is always interrupted by chaos. But I don't mind that. So usually I get up and um, I read the paper and, um, and eat some granola and, and hang out for a while, just 
surfing on the internet. And then I, I, if I'm going to have a really busy day um, with lots of energy, I go to the barn and ride a horse. And then I come home and, and, and work on whatever I'm working on. And, some, and if I need to do a lot of research, then it'll take me a long time to get the number of words, the, the um, number of words that I've committed to for that day. It'll take a long time to get those done. And if I'm not doing a lot of research, it won't take much. Um, usually about an hour after we get up, we talk about what we're going to have for dinner. So that, <laughs> so that gives me something to look forward to because I really like to cook. And, um, and that, you know, I, I, I ride or I ride one or I ride two or um, I go over and do something for the horses of some kind. And so that gets me out of the house, which means that if I'm stuck um, somewhere in the passage that I'm trying to write, I'll usually figure it out about three quarters of the way to the barn and text myself what I'm supposed to do when I come home. Um, lots of times I have some kind of book review that I'm working on or that I need to be, um, or an essay or something that I've agreed to, so I'll work on that part of the day, and I'll work on the novel part of the day. And then I always read. So it's a very quiet life. But clearly work and writing and life and horses mm -hmm. they're integrated you're not a writer who has to take herself off to a, a sealed off office oh, no. to work separately from no. her life my office has two doors and a telephone and the dogs are in and out constantly and so I don't mind and I answer the phone I don't mind anything I don't mind being disturbed at all <laughs> can we have another question yes just behind I'll say one thing about that so when I was in eighth grade, my um, history teacher um, wrote on my report card, she only does what she wants to do. <laughs> and she thought that was a bad thing. But it's not. <laughs> um, I, I think I heard you mention um, a couple of novelists who you liked or who had had some, I mean, contemporary novelists. You mentioned David Lodge, mm -hmm. and you mentioned Nancy Mitford. And I wondered whether you could say something about um, previous generation of American novelists. And what, uh, I'm thinking of Bella and Roth, Mailer. If you could say something about what impact, how well you think they actually dealt with the world that they were in. I don't know. I haven't. I've read a fair amount of Updike. Um, I I read half of American Pastoral, and then when she wanted, when the daughter wanted her dad to give her a passionate kiss, and he gave it to her, I tossed it out the window. <laughs> uh, I never read any Mailer. What was the other one? Oh, I never read any Bella. I like Peter Matheson. You know, but you know, I can't. I'm not a huge fan of the World War II generation um, in terms of sort of hyper-masculine blowhardism. And so I, f I focus more on previous generations, and so I can't say that I was influenced at all by 
And this is what I tell students. You know, I say, do not be influenced by your teachers. Be influenced by your peers, because they're your audience. When I was at the Writers Workshop in Iowa City, various um, World War II generation editors and writers would come, and they would give talks, and they would pat some lucky student on the head and um, pretend that they had found the, the star. They never did. <laughs> It, what we got from each other was much more valuable than what we got from them because it gave us a sense of who we were, not who um, somebody else wanted us to be, and therefore we would succeed. So, you know, I loved writing 13 Ways. I like having students. I like giving them advice, but I want them to look at one another. I don't want them to look at. My first editor was my age. Um, and that's why I got to write practice novels, because I wasn't having to be a star for the benefit of some big New York editor. Um, I just had to write it well enough to get it out there and get a little pat on the head. And did you know that that was what you always did want to do? I mean, I know there was a point where you might have done something. I a wanted bit more to be a jockey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but obviously, that wasn't going to work. Um, Yes, that's what I wanted to do pretty much from... Actually, my big moment was when I came to England when I was 17. I was, my, my mother and stepfather <clears throat> had friends who lived on Albion Street right off by Speaker's Corner, and they said I could come. So I came in March for two weeks, and they were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to me, and they showed me all kinds of things and um, took me lots of places and bought me a mini skirt. And, <laughs> and it was fabulous. And so when I went home, I wrote my senior paper about my trip um, to, to England. And I got an A on my paper. I said, this is really fun. And so then I went to college and, and stuck with creative writing. There. That was just, that, it was that it. Was it. From, that was from it. That moment yeah. on. Do we have another question? Yes, right at the front. Are there any writers that you would say have influenced you or do you enjoy to read now? Well, I would, the, first, the three books that influenced me, and I think this is often the case, that the books that you read when you're about 13 just won't glom onto them and they create your sensibility. And this is really true of me. So the three I remember the best are David Copperfield, Giants in the Earth, and um, a, a biology book we read called The Web of Life, which is about the ecosystem. And I, you know, the, the, I found Giants in the Earth totally riveting because one bad thing happens after another. Until finally, and I know you'll never read it, so I'm going to tell you what <laughs> happens. Until finally the protagonist freezes to death on the lee side of a hay bale while... <laughs> while his wife go, climbs into a wooden trunk and goes crazy. Wow! <laughs> and, and then we had read Oliver Twist. I told you my response to Oliver Twist. And then we read um, Great Expectations, didn't understand a word of it, didn't know what he was talking about. And so the time came to, we had to finish David Copperfield, and we had two weeks to do it, and I put it off, put it off, put it off. And so finally I went into the basement and read it, and I read it all in two days, and I adored it, and I still remember so many things about it. Uh, you know, things like, 
the the king's head who wouldn't that wouldn't get out of um, Uncle what was his name Uncle Dick's set King Charles's head won't get out of Uncle Dick. Obviously, this is Charles Dickens talking about himself and his own preoccupations. I didn't know this at the time, but it really stuck in my mind. And so those were very formative. Then when I did Thirteen Ways, I read a lot of my old favorites, but I discovered some new ones. So I discovered Anthony Trollope. I discovered Emil Zola. Um, and I said, oh, these are novels for grown-ups, the Trollope and Zola especially, and others too that I discovered. So um, uh, I guess I would say I had a, a re little bit of a re-education when I did Thirteen Ways. Thank you. I think we've got time for one more question, and it's there. It is, it is you. Um, <laughs> do you think that it makes... I'm assuming you're going to say no. Do you think that writers or would-be writers shouldn't read books about fiction like 30 Ways? Because it's, it makes them even more self-conscious and inhibited. No, there's some things in 13 Ways that I think are quite practical that I think, and, and writers have come up to me and said, I read 13 Ways and I was working on my novel and then I read 13 Ways, I rewrote it and it got published. I mean, I'm not kidding you. The information in 13 Ways is very practical. So there's one book called, it's about the structure of the novel. And, and so one of the things I noticed when I was, this is just an example. So one of the things I noticed when I was reading all these very weird novels some of them hadn't started out to be novels at all. You know, like, um, oh, now all names go away, but um, I'll come up with it in a minute. So, but there was a moment in almost every one, right at the 62 or 3% mark, where things changed. It's as if the novelist didn't matter how long the book was, whether it was 100 pages or 1,000 pages, the novelist went, ah, started afresh. You know, I thought that's really interesting, and it's probably related to, you know, the golden curve, you know, or whatever. Um, so there's, so I put that kind of practical information in. So I think that the chat, the how-to chapters are pretty practical. the The bibliography says, the gist of the bibliography is, read it if you want to. If you don't, forget it. You don't have to do anything. Um, you can do it your way. The, the main rule that I talk about, or the main principle that I talk about, is what I saw on the wall behind a friend's typewriter when I was at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which is a sign that said, nobody asked you to write that novel. <laughs> and Which means that you're free. Write it, don't write it. Nobody cares, and probably your relatives will bring a sigh of relief. <laughs> and so, so I think, you know, the books that you read that would help you, there's so many books about writing, so the books that you read that help you, you can sample them, and you say, oh, this helps, or this doesn't. You know, I'm, I'm putting this one away. This one's not working for me. It shouldn't make you self-conscious. It should make you eager. It should make you curious. It should make you say, oh, I can do that. Because every novel is imperfect. doesn't matter what it is. It's imperfect. I, I have a friend who's an artist. And 
Um, I was at the Met. I was at the Met in New York, and I said, and there was a very beautiful painting that I thought was really alluring. And I called him up. I called my friend up. I said, Have you ever seen blah blah blah? Um, at, it's at the Met. And he said, Is there someone standing in front of it looking really depressed? <laughs> and I said, Well, as a matter of fact, there is. And he said, See, he's an aspiring artist. And he's saying to himself. <laughs> I will never, ever be able to do this. And I thought, you know, aspiring novelists never say that. They say, you know, if Tolstoy had come to me and asked me for some advice about Anna Karenina, I would have said, include a sex scene. You know, we don't know what's drawing these two people together. We're having it to take it on, you know, just your statement. And it doesn't work. You know, so that's the way novelists think. It, I could do better, and then they find out later. Well, no, they couldn't do better, but they can do something that is their own, and that's all that matters. So, yeah, just sample is the thing to do. I think. Jane, just just um, tell us about where we are in this trilogy now. This is obviously just published now here. Mm-hmm. Um, we've two more parts to come, obviously. Mm-hmm. When are we likely to see the next bit? We look over to your publisher for clarification. Next May, and then the final volume next October. So, in fact, we don't really have a horribly long wait. We no, can, you don't. We can pace ourselves, and by the end of yeah. next year, we will know all about the Nineteen <laughs> yes, family. Yes, we will. Thank you so much. It's thank just you been for a pleasure. And thank you to the audience. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.